Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe. One of the preparations for Rosh Hashanah is... The first thing that we have to do is fix everything that we're doing right. Which sounds surprising, because you think to yourself, if I'm doing it right, why do I have to fix it? But now listen to this. The question is, this thing that you're already doing, are you doing it with all of your heart? You see, that's, that's where we begin. We begin by starting with the things that we're already doing, and making sure that we're doing it with all of our heart. And if you start there, and you're really mindful of that, then that's going to have an amazing domino effect on everything else in your entire life. So that's where we begin. i just start with a, a story, something that happened to me uh, three years ago, but then there was sort of like this P.S. to the story that happened over Shabbos that, that sort of surprised me. My son was a senior in high school here in Los Angeles, and he said, there's, there's a school trip, and we're, we're going to Poland, and the trip is going to go to the various concentration camps in Poland, including Auschwitz, and we're also going to go to a lot of the, the very great Hasidic masters' grave sites which, as everyone knows, are very special, I'll be fancy and call them spiritual vortexes, but they're really special places to pray. And of course, you don't pray to the dead person, but you pray in the merit of everything that this holy person accomplished. That And they're very special places just to visit. You can connect with the holiness of that individual, and also it kind of gives your prayers uh, wings, so to speak. And... One of the very special Rebbe's that we were going to visit was the Kutzka Rebbe. So if you kind of follow the names that I mentioned during these talks, the Kutzka Rebbe should be familiar to you because I bring him up all the time. And the opportunity to visit the Kever, the, the gravesite of the Kutzka Rebbe, was like a phenomenal opportunity. But even more so because my son is named after the Kutzka Rebbe. And not only was he named after the Kutzka Rebbe, but he's a direct descendant of the Kutzka Rebbe. And not only that, but we named him on the yard site of the Kutzka Rebbe. So in other words, the day of my son's bris, when he received the name of the Kutzka Rebbe, was on the yard site of the Kutzka Rebbe. So a lot of very special things. And of course, his teachings really influence me deeply to this day. If you want to know, his path was the path of truth. Why are you doing what are you doing? Whatever you're doing, why are you doing it? Before you do it, you ask yourself, why am I about to do what I'm going to do? Why am I about to say what I'm going to say? Do I really mean this? For whose sake is what I'm about to do for? My own glorification? Or to put more light into the world? to recognize Hashem in everything. So, this is a very, very deep path. It can even be a dangerous path, because it can lead, perhaps, to paralysis. That they're so busy trying to purify their motives and trying to really delve into the depths of their own heart why they're doing what they're doing, there's a phrase I, I heard one time, paralysis by analysis. I thought that was a very interesting phrase, paralysis by analysis, meaning that it's good to do things for the right reason. But something we also have a concept in, in Torah called shalolishma bolishma, which is Hebrew for if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, over time, you will come to do the right thing for the right reason. So, even if you decide that this mitzvah that you're about to do, or this kindness that you're about to do, is perhaps a little bit self-serving, 
do it anyway. That's the bottom line. You, you shouldn't think that in an effort to be holy, that better not to do something unless you're doing it from a place of total purity. That's not the Torah way. The Torah way is even if your action is imperfect, if it's a mitzvah, if it's a positive action, even if your soul is a little bit kind of out of line and your motives are slightly corrupt, perhaps, do it anyway. Do the good thing anyway. And over time, you'll come to do the good thing for the good reason. Okay? Why is that? Because the mitzvahs are so holy. The commandments are so holy that if you actually perform them, you integrate that light into your soul and the action itself will purify your soul. That, that's how it works. So over time, the actions themselves will purify you and then you'll come to do them in pure ways. I'll just tell you a story. It's one of my favorites. I don't know which rabbi it said in the name of, but it was one of the Bali Musr. So this was a certain group of rabbis around the 1800s, and their specialty was really making sure that people lived the most ethical lives, that morality and doing things for the right reason and in the right way. So this was one of the leaders of the movement, and someone from a nearby town asked this particular rabbi, for a favor. And the rabbi was unsure whether he should do it or not, because he wasn't exactly sure whether what was being asked of him was a proper thing. And then he asked himself the question, maybe I don't want to do it because I'm lazy. Maybe because this person lives in a faraway town and it's going to be an effort to go all the way there in order to do that, so that really it's laziness acting itself out on me, but the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, like has its tricks. So it's manifesting itself within my intelligence as really an ethical question. But it's not an ethical question. I should do it. I'm just lazy. Or maybe it really is unethical, and that's why I don't want to do it. <laughs> so he had this conflict. So what did he do? He rode all the way to the neighboring town, and he sat on a bench, didn't go to the person, and he thought about the question again. Because now he could think clearly, because he had already made the trip, and laziness was not going to be a factor. And when he thought about it in the neighboring town, he decided that what was being asked of him was unethical, and he got back on his horse, and he went back home. I love that story. That's an awesome story. That's an awesome, awesome story. You know, when we talk about Kutsk, and we talk about purifying your, your motives, like the idea that he thought that maybe I'm not doing it because I'm lazy, and he went all the way to the other place just to eliminate that as a factor in his thinking. And then decided, no, it's unethical. And then he came all the way back home. Fantastic. Fantastic. These are who our great people are. Masters. Masters of spiritual refinement. Masters of truth. Okay. So, I'll tell you something about myself, which is that I, I, I really had no interest in going to the concentration camps at all. For whatever reason, you know? it's I guess it's a personal thing, but I just didn't want to go. I had no plans on ever going. However, this same trip, which was going to the concentration camps, was also going to go to various holy grave sites, including the Kutzka Rebbe's grave site. And I could go with my son, who we named after the Kutzka Rebbe. The two of us could go together to his grave site if I went on this trip. And it turns out that this trip was in this one week that my work schedule had off. Amazing, right? That's, that in itself is amazing. So my wife said, you should definitely go. And I thought about it and I agreed and I was like, absolutely, I should go. So we went together. Um, and by the way, um, I'll just tell you that I'm really happy that I went to see, to visit the sites of the concentration camps. You know, it's, it's nothing that I would have done otherwise, but now that I was there and I went to several of them, I'm very, very happy that I went. And 
you know, again, this is a personal thing. It's an emotional thing. But if you're wondering, contemplating, should I go? Should I not go? I would recommend it. I really would. I think it's really valuable. So my son and I were at the Kutzka Rebbe's Kever, his gravesite. And it's a little house in a little cemetery. And believe it or not, where is the Kutzka Rebbe buried? You know, everyone was named after their town. Kutsk um, is actually a town in Poland to this day. And, you know, we saw road signs, like traffic signs that said Kutsk. It's pretty, like, wild, you know? We got to the gravesite, and there were some parents went along with their sons. They, they were all juniors and seniors in high school, so they were all about 16, 17, 18. And there were about maybe 20, 25 of us. And I was standing there, and this is now why I'm telling you this whole story. I, I don't know what happened exactly. It's nothing that I thought about. It's nothing that I did on purpose. It just happened, which was I just felt this jolt in my body, and I started running around the kever. And there was snow covering the ground, like it could have slipped or whatever. It didn't. And I don't know what possessed me, but I just started running around the, the, the kever, which again was in this small house. And then the leader of the trip said, saw what I was doing, and he said, everyone run with David. Everyone follow David. And now all of a sudden there were like 20 or more people or something like that all of us running around the Kutzka Rebbe's kever, like circle after circle after circle. And then at a certain point, I just stopped. And then I just kind of walked onto the bus by myself. And the leader of the trip, Rabbi Suffren, walked onto the bus after me, and he, he just looked at me and he said, I never saw anything like that. Like, you just started making hakafas around the grave. I never saw anything like that. So hakafas, just in case you don't know, once a year we finish reading the entire Torah. And as soon as we finish it, we start it again. And that happens on Simchus Torah. So you have Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, then you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Forgiveness, then you have Sukkot, right, the time of joy, and the, the, the end of Sukkot, we finish the Torah and we begin it again. And part of the celebration of finishing the Torah and beginning it again is you dance seven times around the bima, where they place the Torah to be read. So you dance around it seven times, and that takes a while. In certain places, that will take hours. And each, each rotation is with song and dancing and all the and celebration. So those are called hakafas. Anyway, so, so the rabbi said to me on the bus, he said, I never saw someone make hakafas around. Like, you know, what, what was that? I said, I, did, I don't know. So now, why am I telling you this story? Because that happened like three years ago. The other night, Friday night, this past Shabbos, I'm reading this book. And it's an account of the Munkacher Rebbe's. He was one of the great Hasidic masters before World War II, also called the Minchas Eliezer. And he was the leader of Hungarian Jewry, and, you know, one of the big uh, Hasidic Rebbe's in the world. He wanted to visit very badly the leading Sephardi Kabbalist in Israel someone named the Saba Kadisha, who was over a hundred years old. And getting to Israel at that time, people still took a boat. So getting to Israel was a, was a very arduous process. And he went with a group of Hasidim. It's a whole long story. And he met with the Saba Kadisha, this great leader of Ashkenazi Jewry and, and Sephardi Jewry met and came together and learned together and 
I'm sure they were talking about how to bring the Mashiach. And it really, it was very, very holy, very special. In addition to the meetings with the Saba Kadisha, he's visited maybe two dozen different graves. He gets to Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, who's one of the all-stars of the sages in the Talmud, one of the greatest ones. Um, many miracles were made by Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. And by the way, he was the father-in-law of Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai married Rav Pinchas uh, Ben Yair's daughter. Okay, so really he was very, very great. In fact, they said that God even split the sea just for him at one point. Can you imagine? Like a, a private splitting of the sea just for him. Incredible. Okay, so now the author writes... And again, this is why I'm telling you, just because it just kind of just stunned me when I read this. They said, when we visited the gravesite of Reb Pinchas ben Yair, it's a tradition handed down by the tzaddikim that you're to make hakafas around his gravesite. And so we did seven circles around his gravesite. And I was like, what I've never heard of this before or since. And even this rabbi who was on the trip with us, who's very, very knowledgeable, never heard of it before or since. The idea of making hakafas around a gravesite. So, what's the point of this story? I think we just have to put it in Reb Shlomo's category of what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? See, there's a level where the mind is really the highest, but there's a level where the body is even higher than the mind. Because the thoughts of the mind only go so high. The Ishvitzer Rebbe says, if I were to ask you, what is the highest part of your body? Most everyone would answer the top of my head. But look at my hands. Your hands can rise even higher than your head. See, when it came to the Yom Kippur service, there were two identical goats. One goes on the altar, one gets thrown down a cliff. And they were identical goats. And the Kohen Gadol had to choose which goat is going to go where. How can he choose? They're both identical. So, excuse me, the Torah, so the Torah mandates that there would be this box and there would be two lots in the box, like lottery tickets, two lots in the box. And he would reach in with his hand and that's how he would assign it. One would be marked for the altar and one would be marked for being thrown off this cliff. By the way, that's where we get the word scapegoat from, where you blame someone's problems. Oh, he's just a scapegoat. They're just blaming his problems on them. That comes from this incident where, where basically the, the sins of the Jewish people were put on this goat and it was thrown off the cliff. It, it was the original scapegoat. But how do you decide if they're identical? You can't decide with your intellect. You decide with your hands. Why? Because the hands are even higher than the head. The hands can reach above the head to a place that the mind can't even go. Meaning to say that God sends us in directions. That sometimes we don't even know that we're going in those directions, but God is sending us in those directions. An example that Reb Shlomo gave one time, very simple example, while he brought this teaching as an illustration. He said, you know, sometimes you're just kind of walking down the street and you just decide to turn a corner. You don't even know why. And then you meet an old friend. That, that, that's what we're talking about. It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny because we tend to think of the, the like, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard the body referred to as a big bag of meat, right? All of us are sort of like brains trapped in a, in a hamburger soup. Like, that's a, a very sort of, unkind, perhaps even disrespectful way of talking about your body. Um, 
but that's how we tend to think of it. Like, you know, the mind's the, the smart one, the, 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 the body's the dumb one, and that's what it is. But when we do mitzvahs, we sanctify the body as well. When we do mitzvahs with our physical body, our body becomes holy as well. And God didn't just make the body. Remember, everything in the world has an aspect of holiness to it. And we get to refine our bodies as well as our souls. Very, very important. Very important. To think of it as a holistic entity, your body and your soul, both of them are holy and both of them need attention. Okay, so I just wanted to share that story with you. And now I want to go into the Parsha a little bit. We talked about the first fruits and all of these Parshas leading up to Rosh Hashanah are all about Rosh Hashanah. They're also about what they're talking about. You know, it says that the the simple level never never is left behind of a of a verse in the Torah. You have to appreciate the simple level of it, but you also have to plumb the depths of it also. So it's talking about bringing our first fruit to the base Hamigdash, to the Holy Temple, but it's also talking about Rosh Hashanah. So what is the connection between bringing your first fruit to the Holy Temple and preparing for Rosh Hashanah? So let's talk about that a little bit. And it's, um, it's very, very special. You see, When you brought your first fruit, there was something called a vidui. Vidui is Hebrew. It's, it's translated as confession. There would be a confession that you would make when you brought your first fruits to the Holy Temple. And basically, there's something strange about this confession. If you look, if you look in the Torah, it, it spells out exactly what you would say. If I were to just use the word confession in general... You would think, I'm going to tell you what I did wrong. I'm confessing what I did wrong. Okay, that's how it's used 99% of the time, the word confession. What's so interesting about the confession that we make when we bring the first fruit to the Holy Temple is we confess what we did right. Isn't that interesting? And if you look at it, it says, I didn't do this wrong, and I didn't do that wrong, and I didn't do this wrong, and I didn't do that wrong. In other words, you're confessing everything that you did right. So that's one of the main preparations for Rosh Hashanah. Not just to be dwelling on the negativity. Not just, I did this wrong, and I did that wrong, and, you know, all the rest. But you also have to be able to confess what you did right. You see, if you want to be a holistic person... If you want to be a fully integrated person, you have to work on your flaws. That's true. But you also have to acknowledge all the good things that you're doing. And you go, well, no, I don't have to do that. And the answer is, no, no, no. Yes, you do have to do that. Because otherwise, you're not going to be an integrated person. Do you understand? So, so... You have to confess because a lot of people, it's easy for them to say to themselves what they're doing wrong, but not what they're doing right. So sometimes it has to come from this language of confession. I have to say what I'm doing right. Now I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. I think this is a great story on this subject, by the way. Um... Someone was riding on a train. Uh, this was before World War II. And he found himself next to the Chofetz Chaim, one of the greatest rabbis, right? So they started talking. And the man said, the man didn't know that he was sitting next to the Chofetz Chaim. Okay? He didn't know. He's talking to him, but he doesn't know it's the Chofetz Chaim. So 
they, they're talking some more. And the man says, I'm coming to see the Chofetz Chaim. He's so great. He's so great. And he doesn't know he's talking to the Chofetz Chaim. And the Chofetz Chaim says back to him, he's not so great. And he goes, no, 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 no. He's this amazing holy man. And the Chofetz Chaim says, he's not so holy, right? And this goes back and forth. The man keeps on talking about the greatness of the Chofetz Chaim. And the Chofetz Chaim keeps on saying that, you know, whatever, you're, you're exaggerating. Till the man gets very upset and he slaps the Chofetz Chaim across the face. This is a true story, by the way. He slaps him across the face and he says, how dare you insult one of the great people of the Jewish people? And then the train stops and there are hundreds of people gathered outside to greet the Chofetz Chaim. And the man sees that it was a Chofetz Chaim, that he just slapped the face of the Chofetz Chaim. And the man, you can imagine, he's beside himself. He's so broken and upset. How, how could he have done such a thing? And he starts apologizing. And listen to what the Chofetz Chaim said. He said, he said, no, he said, you did the right thing. Because you can't just not say Lashon Hara, in other words, bad speech. You can't just not say Lashon Hara about other people. You also can't say Lashon Hara about yourself. There are also Torah prohibitions that you can't speak in a disrespectful way about yourself. And so he felt, the Chofetz Chaim felt that the slap that he received was proper since he was violating that commandment. He was speaking bad about himself. Isn't that interesting? Amazing story. It's an amazing story. And that gets back to this idea that you have to be able to confess what you're doing right. Okay. So now I want to further develop this idea of the first fruits. So you're taking the first fruits and you're bringing them to the Holy Temple. Now, there's such an awesome gematria. And every year I, I, I learn more and more about the depths of what this gematria is. Of course, that means a numerical equivalent. Because remember, the Torah is infinite. So the Torah is working on an infinite number of levels, including the mathematical. So if you have a word that equals one number and another word um, or words that equal the same number, that means that there's a DNA connection between the two, okay? Sometimes it will be hard to figure out. It's not always easy to figure out. And sometimes it's just like the angels sing. It's just like, ah, and like all the lights turn on and you realize this phenomenal connection between two concepts. Well, believe it or not, you're taking your first fruits to the base Hamigdash. That's how you say Holy Temple in Hebrew. The base Hamigdash, those words, base Hamigdash, are, is the exact same number, you ready for this? As Rosh Hashanah. Base Hamigdash and Rosh Hashanah are the same gematria. And by the way, that's from the Imre Noam, the Jikavar Rebbe. He was the grandson of the Ropshitzer Rebbe, who was like the right-hand man of the Chos of Lublin, just in case you want to know where he falls out uh, among the, the Rebbe's, okay? And Reb Shlomo referred to the Jikovar Rebbe as a supercomputer before there were computers. I mean, his gematrias are phenomenal, what he was able to see in the Torah, or uncover in the Torah. Okay, so now let's plug in that gematria and read this passage uh, with this new understanding. You're to bring your first fruits to Rosh Hashanah. What are your fruits? These are the beautiful things that you did, right? Because when you bring your fruits, you have to admit all the good things that you did. Your fruits are the good things that you did. So everyone has to take stock. If you want to prepare for Rosh Hashanah and you want to do it in a proper, holistic way, it's not just I have this to improve and I have that to improve and I'm doing chuva over this or chuva over that. 
right? Trying to fix bad character traits, past actions, all that is important. But part of the process is also bringing your first fruits, which means you're collecting, you have to put it in a vessel. That's actually a Torah mitzvah. You have to take the fruits and put it in a vessel. Okay, you can't just have them in your pockets <laughs> and just like you're bundled up like you're carrying them like this. Like sometimes, uh, I don't know if you're like this, you go to the supermarket and it's like you don't see like one of those little plastic hand baskets and you don't see a metal cart and you're like, ah, I just have a few items. And the next thing you know, it's like you're juggling like 10 different items, you know. I don't know if you ever do that. I do that. Um, but you couldn't do that with the fruits. You actually, it says in the Torah, you actually had to put it in a vessel, in a basket. Which is interesting. Which means that the act of recognizing the good that you did, that you've done, that you're doing, there has to be an organized aspect to it. There has to be a coherent aspect to keeping track of the good things that you're doing. That's what it means to take your good things and to put it in a vessel, right? It's not like every eight months I remember something I did good. That, that's, not, that's not the program, right? The Torah on some level is a, a program. You want to follow the program, you're tracking your good deeds and you're doing it in an organized fashion. So you take your fruit, those are the good things that you're doing, you're organizing them, and you're bringing them to the base of Migdash. You're bringing the good deeds that you did to Rosh Hashanah. Okay. So now I want to go deeper. What is this idea of Rosh Hashanah and Beis Migdash? Rosh Hashanah and Beis Migdash. Why are they the same? Well... The Beis HaMikdash was a miraculous place. Miracles happened there, and you could see them. It was an ongoing um, recreation in a different way. It wasn't an exact recreation, but the Ramban says it was an ongoing recreation of the events of Mount Sinai. Just like we got the Torah tablets at Mount Sinai, the Torah tablets were housed in the Holy Temple. And just like there were miracles at Mount Sinai, so that the existence and the presence of God was very obvious, so too there were miracles going on in the Holy Temple, so that the presence and the existence of God was very obvious, right in front of your face. You could see it happening. Okay. So, the Beis Migdash was a miniature of the world, a miniature of the universe, but a perfected universe. So that what you saw was the universe harmonized. It was in harmony, right? And that's, that's deep, that's deep. Because what happens on Rosh Hashanah is that God shines a new light in the world. And that new light, when it's coming into the world, it's in this place of harmony. Right? Because it's new. We haven't had a chance to mess the whole new structure up yet. It's just coming down in this like perfected, harmonized way. Now, I'll just tell you an interesting historical aside, because I'm fascinated by this. And if you want to see this, it's, it's on the internet. You can just... Google this on the internet and you can see it for yourself. It's, it's worth seeing because it's just like so wild. You know, you could have an interesting discussion with someone. Uh, who is the greatest scientific mind of all time? So, you know, like I saw Time magazine. This going back, we're already in the year 2021, right? But around the time of the year 2000, Time Magazine wanted to know, you know, every year they have the man of the year, right? Or the person of the year. Um, they wanted to know who is the person of the century. Isn't that interesting? Like they, 
you know, these things obviously are wildly subjective, but nonetheless, it's an interesting exercise. Time Magazine wanted to know, who should we name as the person, not of the year, but of the century, meaning all of the 1900s, from 1900 to 1999. Who wins? And you know who they picked? Albert Einstein. Again, it's subjective, but interesting, right? Uh, I can't but to tell you one of my favorite, favorite stories. Uh, also about the Chofetz Chaim. I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. So there was a student of the Chofetz Chaim, and uh, he was falsely accused by the Soviet government of some crime that he didn't commit. I mean, the injustices were wild and rampant, and it was a horrible, horrible period for the Jewish people. Horrible, horrible. Um, anyway, so this, this Jew was falsely accused of some made-up charge, and he was brought into this Soviet, you know, they call them kangaroo courts because there's no real justice going on in them. And um, they brought the Chofetz Chaim, because this person was a student of the Chofetz Chaim, they brought the Chofetz Chaim in order to be a character witness, you know, so that the judge should hear that this person is actually a very good person and is not guilty of this crime. Now, before the Chofetz Chaim spoke, the lawyer for this falsely accused person wanted to make sure that the judge fully understood the greatness of the Chofetz Chaim. In other words, you're not just hearing character testimony from anyone, you're hearing it from, you know, one of the holiest people in the entire world, or maybe the holiest person in the entire world is about to speak on behalf of this person. So the lawyer went on and on about the greatness of the Chofetz Chaim before the Chofetz Chaim spoke. Now, the Soviet prosecuting attorney, right, at a certain point, stood up and said, all of those things that you're saying are lies. And the Chofetz Chaim stood up and he said, I agree that they're all lies. And then he said, but do they say those lies about you? <laughs> Can you imagine? Okay, so Einstein is the man of the century. You agree, you disagree, but do they say about you that you were the man of the century? I mean, it's, it's pretty good. Okay. So you could argue it's Albert Einstein. I'm sure there are other choices, but you could also argue perhaps that it was Sir Isaac Newton. Because really, a lot of what Einstein said he would never be able to say without the work of Sir Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton was like ridiculously off the charts, ridiculously off the charts, just in terms of who he was and what he accomplished. And he loved Jews. He himself was not Jewish, but he loved Torah. He loved Torah. And he loved God. He really a, a very special person. And you know what else he loved? He loved the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, which, of course, had been destroyed for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And this is what you can find online <clears throat> and I've seen it with my own eyes, drawings that Sir Isaac Newton made of the Beis Hamikdash with his own pencil, architectural sketches of the Beis Hamikdash. And why was he so fascinated by the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple? Because he felt that the measurements, which are list listed in the Torah of how to build it, that the measurements were the divine harmony. See, when you walk by houses in your neighborhood, sometimes they have big windows, sometimes they have small windows, sometimes they have a big doorway, sometimes they have a small doorway. And some are pleasing and some are less pleasing. It's a little bit subjective. But what Sir Isaac Newton, who was putting mathematical formulas like for gravity and 
He was the inventor of calculus. He just invented calculus. Can you imagine? He saw an exactness and a precision to the forces of the universe. And in the Beis Amigdash, he saw a miniature of the universe, and therefore he saw a key to the secrets of the measurements and the harmonizing of the dimensions of the universe. I, I find that fascinating. I think that's amazing. Okay, so, so what's the idea? Rosh Hashanah is the same gematria as Beis Hamigdash. On Rosh Hashanah, God is shining this new light, but it's a light of perfect harmony. Rosh Hashanah is the same number as Beis Hamigdash because Beis Hamigdash was in perfect harmony. And this new world that's coming down is also in perfect harmony. So that's a, a deeper a deeper look into why these two numbers are the same. But now I want to go maybe even deeper. At the end of the Shemona Esrei, the main prayer that we daven three times, excuse me, three times a day, we say these words, Yihiratzon um, mefinecha may be your will, God sheyibane beis hamigdash, that you should rebuild the beis hamigdash. Rebuild it. Okay. So this is a special holy thing that you can have in mind leading up to Rosh Hashanah, which is coming. So that when you say, when you pray, God, rebuild the Beis Amigdash at the end of your Shemona Esrei, you can have in mind, God, please rebuild Rosh Hashanah. In other words, make this Rosh Hashanah in perfect harmony. Make this Rosh Hashanah absolutely perfect and beautiful for the entire world. Let this be the Gula Shlema, the final redemption, where the entire world corresponds and becomes harmonized. But I want to go even deeper. We say, Sheyibene Beis Hamigdash. Beis means house, right? Meaning this, the holy temple was a, house, it was a sanctuary, but Bez means house. But Bez also is a letter of the alphabet. Bez means two. It's the number two. Aleph, Bez, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So now what does this mean? Now we're getting extra deep. Sheyibene Bez. Please, God, rebuild all of my twos. My body and my soul my good inclination and my bad inclination, heaven and earth, good and evil, free choice, because I can do this thing or I can do that thing. My two eyes, please God, rebuild the bays, take all the duality, take all the inner conflict that's within me, and please God, perfectly harmonize them so that I can be whole, so that I can be integrated. And remember, each person is a miniature of the universe. And when we fix ourselves, we fix the entire world. When we harmonize ourselves and fix the divisions within ourselves, the Beis Amigdash that is ourselves, then we bring harmony to the grand structure itself. Now, at the end of the Vidui, after we brought the first fruit, we say, God, I did everything that you asked me. Now, usually I'm not speaking so much about Hebrew grammar in, in, the, uh, in the Torah because I don't know much of it. But I did notice something in the Hebrew grammar that I want to share with you now. We refer to God throughout this opening as Hashem Elokecha, which means God, your God. Okay? And we say it over and over again. 
God, your God, God, your God, Hashem Elokecha, Hashem Elokecha, Hashem Elokecha, over and over again. Keeps on coming up, that exact phrasing. And then we even say, Hashem um, Elokei Avuseinu, God of our forefathers. Okay, so then that's another one. And then finally, after all of these mentions, we say, Hashem Elokai, which means Hashem, my God. Very interesting. What does that mean? And what's the context that we say it in? When do we finally say, Hashem, my God? And we say it after this whole delivery of the first fruits, when we said, I did everything that you asked me to do. That's when we say, Hashem, my God. Okay. So I'm going to tell you what Rashi says about that. Okay. Well, first let me tell you what my analysis was, just because it will make you appreciate how much better Rashi's analysis is. <laughs> no disrespect from Rashi that I'm going to bring my thought first. It's just to make Rashi sound even better. But here's my here here here's the thought that came to me, which I, I do think is 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 maybe worth sharing. When we say, "God, I did everything you asked me to do," that's when we call God my God. In other words, when is God your God, or when is God my God? Maybe you think when I believe in God, that's when God is my God. When I believe in Him, okay. But according to this context, when you do what God says to do, that's when God is your God. Because that's, that's the point in the Torah where we say, God, my God. When we say, God, I asked everything, I did everything that you told me to do. I think that's very interesting. You know, Remember, Kabbalistically, the name of this dimension we live in is Olam Asiya, which means the world of action. You know, we, we love good intentions. Good intentions are very special, right? But the Jewish view is, what are you actually doing, right? Like we said, shalolishma bolishma. Better to do the right thing for the wrong reason because you're doing the right thing, right? Because this is the world of action. And if you do the right thing for the wrong for the wrong reason over time, eventually you're going to do the right thing for the right reason. Because the mitzvahs themselves are so holy, they're going to purify your soul, and then you're going to do the right thing for the right reason as well. All right, now let me tell you what Rashi says. When it comes to, God, I did everything that you told me to do. You know what Rashi says that means? That I did everything that you told me to do? That I rejoiced. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Like, okay, you did it all. Did you? Were you happy about it? Did you rejoice? Did you celebrate life? Did you celebrate the fact that you were able to accomplish this? Did you celebrate like that God blessed you with this thing? Yeah, okay. Then you, then you did what you were asked to do. You rejoiced? Did you rejoice? I rejoiced. Okay, good. Then you did. But he goes even further. It, phenomenal. Rashi says that, did you rejoice? Because you didn't finish until you rejoiced. And did you make other people happy as well? Phenomenal, 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 phenomenal. That's when you know you finished. When you rejoice and when you make other people happy as well. Then you can put a nice little check mark next to it. You know, we have to be balanced. If, if you think that this is like a, a boxing match with just you and yourself, and, you know, let's see, how fast can I punch myself to the ground and knock myself out? Then, you know, as Reb Shlomo would say, it's sweet and it's cute, but it's, it's not Torah. It's got to be bringing you to this love relationship. So you have to do the mitzvahs from a place of happiness. 
And if you actually look at the, the Hebrew of it, it says, Evdu es Hashem besimcha. So Evdu means serve Hashem with happiness, but Evdu also means work. And I remember one time I was going through a difficult period of my life. I was kind of just dragging myself through the day. And I thought to myself, Evdu es Hashem besimcha. And I thought, Evdu means work, like... Sometimes it takes a lot of work to serve God with joy. But you know something? It's worth the work. It's worth the investment of energy. You know, sometimes just acting happy can trigger happiness. And scientists have actually studied this. When you smile, the muscles in your face actually trigger signals to the brain that tell your brain that you're happy. And so your brain responds by firing off endorphins, which are sort of like these happy signals. So you can actually trick your brain and your body into being happy by acting happy. So it's true. Sometimes it's hard work to serve God with joy, but it's worth it because if you act joyful, even if you're not feeling joyful, that sometimes that actually can create this chemical transformation within you where all of a sudden you actually are happy. So it, it works on a number of different levels. It's, it's really holy advice that King David is giving us. Last night, I had this like tremendous opportunity. I gave a speech to China. That was a Zoom talk and something like 400 people signed up for it. And the topic that they gave me was, why are the Jewish people the people of the book? So I just want to share a couple of things that I, I told them, just very short. I began by saying that one of the very first things that a Jewish child is taught is that if you drop like a Torah book to the floor, right, you pick it up and you give it a kiss. And before a person learns, and if you don't know to do this, then then you can start doing it now. Before you learn any Torah, you kiss the book. And when you're finished, you kiss the book. Right? Because our relationship is not just, it's not just an intellectual relationship. It's coming from the heart and from the mind, and the heart and the mind together, and from the soul. It's We have an emotional relationship with the Torah. Right? It's not just a math book. And as Rip Shlomo used to say so brilliantly, he said, did you ever see an English professor finish a lecture on Shakespeare and then kiss the book? Did you ever see a math professor finish a lecture on math and then kiss the textbook? No. But we, right... It's a, like a whole, whole different thing, completely different. So that's, that's one thing that, that I shared. And then, toward the end, someone was saying, you know, you've got Ten Commandments, and then you've got the Seven Universal Mitzvahs, and then you've got 613 Commandments. How do you, how do they all fit together? Well... You know, that, that, that's a pretty big question. So here's what I said. I said, look, all of the commandments can be basically divided up into two categories. You've got the person-God commandments, and then you've got the person-to-person -person commandments. Okay? Those are the two main categories. I said the main commandment between us and God is that there's only one God. Right? We don't say our God is stronger than your God. We say there is no other gods. There is only one power in the world. That all that exists is God. Okay? That's number one. And in terms of person to person, what's the number one mitzvah, person to person? V'yahavta l'reich kamocha. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Right? And Reb Shlomo so brilliantly explained, who is your neighbor? When the Torah says, love your neighbor like yourself, who, who is your neighbor? 
It's not the person who lives next to you. It's not your, the person who has the address on either side of you, the house or the apartment on either side of you. It's whoever you are standing next to in the moment. That's who the Torah is telling you to love like yourself. So when you're on a train, it's the person next to you. When you're at a coffee shop, it's the person next to you, right? When you're in a business meeting, it's the person next to you. That's your neighbor. That's the number one mitzvah. One God and love each other. So, I don't know. I thought as an overview of Judaism, I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting overview of Judaism if you had to kind of put it in 30 seconds. So, we're reading about the first fruits. And this is always the second to last Torah portion that we read before Rosh Hashanah. In other words, we have Kitavo, and then we have Nitzavim, and then we have Rosh Hashanah. That's the way it is every year, by the way. And that's by design. The sages instituted that because Kitavo, we've been talking about the first fruits, but there's another very major section to to. Kitabo, which is um, the curses. There's a lot of curses. And the sages were very mindful of our psychological um, well-being. And they didn't want it to be the last thing that we read before going into Rosh Hashanah. Because we would just be in an imbalanced, emotional, spiritual place if we just read that. Um, and then we went into the new year. So, so the sages put a buffer, which is one more parsha, Nitzavim, between um, the curses and the new year. So it's always the second to last one that we read. And again, that shows you the sensitivity the sages had that we should really come from a place of joy and a place of wholeness. And that's why they did that. But I want to go deeper. Why have the curses at all near Rosh Hashanah? Okay, so listen to what the Eretzvi, Rav Aryetzvi Frummer, Rav Frummer says. Very, very interesting. Everybody knows that in Rosh Hashanah we have the book of life and we have the other book. Rav Shlomo never wanted to say the name of the other book. So he would call it the book of life and the book of not so much. That's how he would say it, okay? Very beautiful, very sensitive, right? So you have the book of life and the book of not so much. And the idea is that when Rosh Hashanah comes, this brand new light comes into the world. And this brand new light, light increases, increases, right? But you see, like the Vilna Gon talks about, when it rains, two things happen. The grass grows and the weeds grow. Very interesting. In other words, the rain itself, it brings both. It increases the good, but if there is bad there, in other words, if you learn Torah, the, the, the sages say in the Talmud that the Torah, Torah study is a Tzam Chaim, and it's Sam Maves. It's an elixir of life, but it's also a potion of death if you don't learn it properly. In other words, it can take your worst qualities and increase them. You know, think about it this way. Have you ever seen people who are like, they, they're very religious, but they're corrupt? Like it's a it's a horrible it's a horrible thing to behold, and that's the idea of the Torah of of being a tzam mavis, an elixir of death, because because it just. You know it 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 can be that too. So now, so now listen carefully. What Rav Frummer says is, that we get these curses before the new year, in order to eliminate our bad qualities, 
so that when the light of the new year comes in, that only the good aspects of ourself grow and increase. And since these curses that we've just read have cut off our bad qualities, this new light of Rosh Hashanah is not going to increase the bad within us. Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating. So, so you get rid of the bad so that when this new energy comes in, it's only increasing the good within you. Okay, so, so we'll just finish up for real this time um, with um, one of the things that all of Breslover Hasidus is based on. Believe it or not, there's a verse in amidst the curses, buried in the curses, that is so, like, amazing that Rebbe Nachman was, like, really taken by this, okay? So, so, at the, um, toward the end of the curses, it's in Pasuk 47, toward the end of it, God says, why will all these terrible things befall you? And believe me, it's like dozens and dozens of like things we don't want to know about, okay? 98. 98, 98 things, right? And we're up to probably about, we're in the 90s at this point of the curses when this verse shows up. Why are all of these things happening? Because during a time of abundance, when God was blessing you, you weren't happy. So that's huge. Now, I want to tell you, and I believe it was in the name of the Sasover Rebbe, how he understands that. Because this is a game changer. This is one of these game-changing Torahs. Okay, life-changing Torahs. So most people would learn it this way. That God says, you know, I gave you good stuff, and you weren't appreciative, and now I'm going to give it to you. That's how most people would learn it. And you know something? Honestly, if you're just kind of reading the simple narrative, that's how I would read it too. So I'd say, okay, well, I have to be extra careful to be very appreciative and happy when good things are happening. But listen to this analysis of it. You see, let's just start with a question. Where are you finding your greatest happiness? In what activities are you finding your highest joy? Is it God? Is it God? You see, because if a person doesn't find their joy in God, you can find your joy in a lot of things. But the center of your joy, the heart of your joy, where are you finding the heart of your joy? If you're not finding it in God, you're going to look for it in other places. Mm-hmm. And as I think it's Kenny Rogers, the country western song, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. You're going to start to look for love in all the wrong places. And you know what? It's going to lead you to some bad scenes. And it's going to lead you to some bad people. And then you know what's going to happen? All of the bad qualities are going to start adding up and all of those are going to have domino effects in your life. So in other words, it's not a threat. God's not threatening you. Like, you better be appreciative. No, it's an analysis. If you aren't finding your happiness in God, then you're going to find your happiness in other things. And then that's going to lead to all of the problems. So this is a great way to end I think, because we talked about the importance of how do I know when I've really done the mitzvah, when I'm rejoicing, and when I'm making other people happy. And it's a great litmus test for a person to ask themselves, where am I finding my greatest joy in life? And be real with yourself. You know, no one else has to hear the answer to this. Where am I finding my greatest joy? And if you want a real x-ray of your present spiritual level, you will find it in the answer to that question. And then you can begin to take corrective measures to try to find more joy. And again, 
There's so much phenomenal Torah that's out there right now. Just find the teacher who you resonate with. That person is out there. I, I promise you, that person is out there. And you'll see what an endless ocean of joy Torah study can be and serving God can be. Because there's nothing more innate within a person than the quest for meaning. Dr. Viktor Frankl talked about that, man's search for meaning. The core of a person is that we, we're meaning junkies. We need meaning. We need it. And the thing is, is that if you can find meaning in everything, you are going to be one happy person. And there's an overlap between connecting with the divine in meaning and that everything counts and that everything has a purpose and everything is like real, then you will be one of these enlightened, you know, blissful type of people. I promise you. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen in my own life how horrible loneliness and horrible boredom. I was a bored, lonely person for so much of my life. And I'm not anymore. I'm not bored and I'm not lonely. And the reason is because I know God is everywhere and is in everything. And so I know I'm never alone and I know there's always something to do. Okay. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.